Welcome to episode number 32 of the Coach Haas Podcast. Today we talk with Trent Nessler, sports PT, movement specialist, and president of Rebound Vitality. We get into Trent's background, the problem with the current return to sport testing, blood flow restriction training, the danger of fixating on return to running, whether it be time-based or criteria-based, and then Trent's biggest obsessions and keys for success. This is one of the best podcasts that Mike and I have done so far to this point. Stay tuned. Enjoy the show. Okay, this is the Coach Haas Podcast, sponsored by Sports Rehab PA, Bucks County's premier sports rehab and performance training, and also our other sponsor, Bioptimizers. Mike, tell us a little bit about Bioptimizers. Bioptimizers, so it's uh, a product I like is Masszymes, digestive enzyme, helps you to get the most out of the food that you're taking in. Uh, you know, if you have an active lifestyle or you're an athlete getting in lots of protein, carbs, the mass signs helps to break that down. So you get the most out of the nutrients you're getting, uh, kind of helps to, you know, uh, dissipate some of that bloating, some of that, you know, uh, conjunction going on in your stomach. You also combine it with the P3OM, the probiotic, take that at night, it helps to break things down overnight. Um, I've, I've used it for probably over about a year now and I, I love the results. Joe, you've used it yourself, feeling pretty good on it. Um, so if you check them out, you could use the uh, code juicy for 10% off and try it out. See how you feel. Nice. Nice. Hey, Mike, this is uh, this is pretty interesting. We have a quick turnaround. We did a fantastic uh, podcast last night, and we're going to follow that up with something that could be even just as amazing. Uh, we've been so much into this ACL realm and you happen to get into a BFR, a blood flow restriction course. Uh, that Trent was teaching, and then you guys kind of got in the conversation. That spun off, and you have been on my ass for about two weeks now. We got to get Trent on. We got to figure out a way to get him on. So Trent is super busy. He's got a lot going on. So we found time in the middle of a Friday afternoon. So we're back on a Friday afternoon. Uh, I didn't even get a chance to shave from last night, so I'm still well. <laughs> I'm growing in my wisdom highlights still, so I got to trim them down a bit. Um, but without any further ado, Trent, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you. And um, welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. And I'm really excited to share some of the passion, our mutual passions around what we're doing. So excited to be here. Awesome. So you are, um, you're the president of Rebound Vitality. That's correct. Okay. Rebound Vitality is an innovative wellness uh, program that is provided to police, fire departments around the U.S., uh, and we currently contract with over 250 different departments across the U.S. Wow. So, again, we always go back into how this came about, right? Sure. Your, your, your 20 or, or so years of being in this, uh, I don't want to, you know, we you were, you were very young when you yes, started. So exactly. yeah. yes, yes. So um, kind of take us back to how you are, where you are now. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a physical therapist by trade. I uh, got my master's degree, uh, started in a sports medicine practice in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I was very fortunate very early on in my career um, that I was with a group that we did a lot of professional baseball 
so actually the first part of my career was just seeing, seeing overhead athletes. Uh, so we, we worked with a lot of the major league teams there in, in Phoenix with spring training. We had contracts with them to do physicals and all that. And as I was going through my career, you know, a couple of years into it, three years into it, I had my own practice uh, at this point. Um, and I was seeing a lot of ACL reconstructions. And um, at, at the point where I decided to really make this a, a calling or felt like I was called to do this, um, we had at that time, we had a large clinic, we had 10 therapists, and we were, we had a week where we had 22 ACL reconstructions come in over a one week period, 22 over a one week period. Wow. And because it was primarily what we were known for is, is, you know, our, our aggressive rehab program on ACL reconstructions. And as I was seeing these kids, and this is, you got, you know, keep in mind, this is back in, I hate to date myself, but late nineties, okay. uh, early okay. 2000. You know, so um, I'm watching these kids walk, watch, watching their gait patterns as they're done with rehab. It's part of their discharge. And I'm like, man, those movement patterns I know intuitively are bad for their ACL. Hmm. So I actually went back, uh, did my doctorate with a focus in biomechanics and motor learning at Northern Arizona University. Um, I was actually part of the first class. So I actually got to tailor it really to what I wanted to do and um, really started to get into the motor learning aspects of how to change motor patterns with ACL reconstructions, um, how to really treat and approach the biomechanics related to ACL reconstructions. And it was at that point that I really started to film people. So I started filming my athletes through a series of motions, um, went from that to uh, a slow motion technology called Dartfish. Uh, where we were filming people and, and uh, created a score, scoring methodology around it. Um, we were doing, you know, I trained about over a hundred therapists on how to do that. The problem was I was finding that there was still too, way too much subjectivity to it. You know, depending on the camera angle, you know, how the camera is positioned, the interpretation of the therapist. So I felt like there still needed to be a more objective way of doing this. And so um, as I'm continuing my clinical practice, uh, I'm doing this kind of on the side. It's like, how do I develop this? Um, so I ended up getting tied up with uh, Microsoft and uh, their very first uh, release of what's called SDK, a software development kit uh, for the new Connect that was coming out. And so we, we got tied up with Microsoft. I actually left the PT field for about three years trying to program the Xbox, basically the Kinect camera to do what we were doing visually with our eyes. Wow. And, you know, we were, I was very fortunate. Uh, we were working with one of the top 12 Microsoft Kinect programmers, you know, and we spent about three years on that project and unfortunately just found that the Kinect was not accurate enough. You know, there's, there's, there's light issues, um, you know, it works off of, of a, kind of a, a, a laser approach where you've got a dot that hits your nose, a dot that hits your cheek, and the time difference between those two is how it makes a, a, a map. And so it's sensitive gotcha. to light, it's sensitive to speed. So uh, we scrapped it uh, after three years in, in, in uh, a multi-million dollar project. Wow. Um, went back to uh, the PT world. Uh, got back into clinical practice uh, and uh, partnered up with a company out of Australia called Dorsa V that has a, a 3D wearable sensor. It's called an IMU, inertial measurement unit. So I, I partnered, you know, it's, it, 
I'm, I'm a firm believer. God has a, a path for everybody. And, you know, I just emailed Amen to that. I, I just emailed their website and one of their salespeople contacted me and said, Oh yeah, we'll have the CEO call you. And I'm like, okay, that's a nice blow off. Right. <laughs> so long story short, he called me. We had a discussion. He flew from Melbourne, uh, Australia, met me in Colorado where I was teaching a course. We sat down over dinner and decided we were going to do something together. Um, their technology by far uh, it, at the time was the most accurate. Uh, it's within 3% of a Viacon system, which is the biomechanics lab. Um, and the way that they were bringing it to the market, there was a huge opportunity to integrate the movement assessment that I created with their technology. So that was around 2015. Uh, we actually commercial, we, we developed it in 2016, but commercialized it in 2017. Um, since the launch, we have about 450 systems across the US right now. Um, and it's been used on over 29,000 athletes. And oh, we've got about oh. seven uh, major research projects going on with it. Um, you know, so most of it is right now focusing around uh, return to sport. You know, return to sport after ACL reconstruction is kind of like the hot topic right now. Like, how do you, how do you? That do hits that? right into our wheelhouse, huh, Mike? I mean, right, that's, right. that's. Now I understand why I wanted yeah. to get you on so fast. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, it, um, we've got this really cool research project going on where um, there is a, there's a patient reported outcome form called the TSK 11 yep. Tampa scale for kinesiophobia scale. 11 form for listeners that don't know it. Um, it's been highly associated with uh, re-injury rate. Matter of fact, if you score a 19 or greater on that test, you're 13 times more likely to tear your ACL upon return to play. And this is just a questionnaire. Right. It's just a questionnaire. And so what we've found is that there, and there's studies that have also tied that particular questionnaire to movement. So uh, showing that if you perform poorly on that, that questionnaire, you perform poorly in movement. So what we're seeing is that we've got a study going on right now. It's a multi-site study. Um, I want to say we have just over 400 subjects right now. And what we're seeing is that when people perform poorly, on the TSK 11, we see specific tests that we look at, uh, we're seeing those results correlate. And so as they improve performance on those movements, their TSK 11 scores improve. And so, you know, that's kind of been our biggest wheelhouse right now is, is ACL reconstruction uh, rehab, ACL reconstruction prevention, ACL reconstruction return to sport. Um, but what I will tell you is, as we all know, biomechanics is biomechanics. You improve biomechanics, yes, you reduce risk for ACL, but you also reduce risk for ankle injuries, hip injuries, low back injuries. You mean oh, they all tie in together, Trey? They do. Can you believe wow. it? And wow. get this, okay. here's, here's a mind-blowing effect, okay? <laughs> you improve biomechanics and performance improves. Power okay. output improves. Vertical wow. jump improves. Sprint speed improves. So what we're seeing is that people are using it in a lot of different ways. You know, that 450 I told you goes across the NFL, the NBA. We have uh, um, uh, NHL teams that are using it. We've got colleges that are using it. And then obviously a lot of PT clinics, performance centers, et cetera. How often are you using that, that Tampa test with them? Are they getting that every time they come in for a training session or is that every? No, so we, we do it. Uh, we do it every time we do a movement assessment. Um, okay. And what the research shows us is from a movement assessment perspective, functional movement perspective to get clinical, meaningful improvement 
you have to do, uh, you have to give it at least every six to eight weeks so that they can make those motor changes, make those strength changes, and then reassess. And what we, and, and we've seen the same thing with the EMI, because when we, the EMI stands for athletic movement index. When you, when you do the test too close together, you know, you get minimal and minimal change, right. but in, in it's discouraging to people like, Oh, I only improved this much, but yeah, but you've improved. So, so that six so to eight progress weeks, is progress, yeah, right? Yeah. Progress is progress. But that six to eight weeks is really kind of that window to show a, a clinically meaningful improvement. Gotcha. You know, and I, and, and I'd say the other thing that makes it so unique is we actually measure, you know, what we call frontal plane motion, right? So everybody knows like if I'm standing on one leg and my knee goes out to, to a varus position and into a valgus position, we know that's bad. But the difference of what we measure is we measure, I can measure that. I can actually put a, a, a meaningful measure on that. I can tell you if you went 10 or 15 degrees. Of gotcha. Valgus. So if you're 10 or 15 and you're 10, the next time we do this, yes. we've made a five degree improvement. Yes. improvement. But more importantly is we measure speed. So if you were to stand up right now and take your knee and go to 20 degrees of valgus, it probably wouldn't hurt you. But if you did that at 250 degrees per second, you'd rupture something. And that's what we know. So we now have speed barriers by which for, we have a speed barrier for single leg squat, a single leg hop, a hop plant. So we know that if you fall outside of that barrier, you're at greater risk. And so what it's allowing us to do, and quite honestly, I find speed is actually more important than degree of motion. So you can move to, if you can control your 20 degrees of valgus, it's not, I mean, I just use that example, right? Standing up, move your knee to 20 degrees. You can control that. But if you, if you don't control the speed at which it happens, that to me is a much bigger issue. Much bigger so, issue. So there's deceleration. Yeah, Mike, I'm sorry. I was going to say, Trent, you know, from now doing BJJ and getting involved in jiu-jitsu, um, when I trained Gracie, joint locks and, uh, you know, you do um, different holes and stuff. It's not even so much the force, but it's the angle and the speed that the force is applied. Yes. A small force at the right section can cause a yep. break, you know? So um, Joe, what we're going to ask is I was going to ask Trent if we could talk about why the, what the problem is with the current return to sport test right now. Yeah, are, that's a little bit more important. I was just yeah. going to kind of butt off of something, but go ahead. Yeah. I well, if you could explain a little bit of that trend of what you've seen and what the problem is with the current tests that are out there now. So the listeners, the coaches and the parents and the athletes can understand why, even though if they pass these tests, why are we still having second tears of ACLs like months later or even a year later and then why, even though they say they passed that, there's still issues. Yeah, you know, and that, that's, a, that's a great point. And quite honestly, that's why, you know, this is such a hot topic right now in sports medicine. You know, the, the current um, criteria that we use for return to play, number one, there is no standard criteria. Um, the, other, the other problem with that is that, um, quite honestly, is that the research shows Number one, there was a REN study published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine in 2018 that showed that, you know what, you can have 100% symmetry because that's, so we use a term called limb symmetry index. How does your right side compare to your left side? And it's usually expressed as a percentage. So if you're within 90%, that's typical kind of barrier, 90%, if you're 90%, you're good to return to play. So with the assumption of that whole thought process is, is that your good side is actually good. 
And what we know is that a lot of times that's not the, that's not the thing. And that's really what the REN study showed. The REN study showed basically that you can have a hundred percent limb symmetry index, but if you jump in both knees dive in towards midline and you collapse your knees in towards midline, you're still at great risk. So, you know, the, the assumption is by this limb symmetry index measure is that you're measuring against a limb that biomechanically is safe. And in the difference of what we do is we base our limb symmetry index on are you symmetrical right to left, but also are you within those speed barriers and those motion barriers? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you can be 100% uh, uh, symmetrical of crap. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and it's still <laughs> crap, right? Right. And then, listen, that was, yeah. that was the example that we used last night. The, one of these PTs is, is, is tied into this whole deficit thing. Meanwhile, they seem to be ignoring the, the fact that when we try to get down into a quarter of a squat or a quarter of a split squat, we're receiving pain at the site. But they insist that, you know, well, as long as we can get that deficit shorter, she can go back to light running. Yeah. And I'm like, well, no, but we're still yeah. trying to deal with the pain yeah. issue. So let's pain, just that's why we're having inhib- pain. Yeah. Pain will inhibit strength. We yeah. all know that. I mean, right. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's back to the pain theory, pain inhibits strength, you yeah. know, so that's, that's part of it is really trying to get over that one, you know, make sure they have good range of motion, make sure that they've got a pain-free range of motion. The other thing too, that we do with the uh, EMI is we all know this, right? You get that athlete who does a single leg squat on their good side and they go good depth. They go on their opposite side and they do half that depth. So what, because why do they do that? One, you know, they may have pain, they may feel some sense of pain, but also subconsciously, they may be aware that if I go to 45 degrees, I'm going to lose control. And so, so what we actually do is we measure how much we call it tibial inclination because it's off the tibia. We measure how much tibial inclination you have with every rep, because it should be symmetrical to the opposite side. Because if you're not symmetrical to the opposite side, it's hard for me to say, if you're only, you know, hundred degrees per second here, what are you, if you'd gone down 15 more degrees, probably a lot higher speed um, because you can't control it. Yeah. So that, that's what we're seeing with these, with the return to sport test, the classic one, which is the single leg hopping one. But the majority of these kids can't even stand on one leg period without seeing torsion or some type of, like you said, corkscrewing, Trendelenburg, retro yep. Trendelenburg. So their foundation is unstable and then they're going and they're competing in a test with plyometric load on it. And they might get to the distance or get the speed they need to complete. But then, you know, in order to get there, like you said, they look like crap to get there. They do. And I apologize. I'm looking off to the side here. I'm going to, I'm actually pulling up a presentation because there was a really good study that actually showed that when you use the current criteria uh, for uh, return to play in athletics um, that only uh, 13% of people actually pass it. So, so wow. if you, it, yeah. So if you, if you use what, and here's, here's, here's what I will tell you. So, so let's for, it's the tool study and I don't remember what year it was. That's why I was trying to pull it up. And apparently it's been a while since I pulled it up. So um, the tool study basically showed that, um, and that's T O O L E for those who want to look it up. American Journal of Sports Medicine. I don't remember what year. 
Um, but if you, if you pull up that study, what it showed is, is that the criteria was number one, that you have a patient reported outcome. You have to pass that. Um, number two, you had <clears throat> a series of single leg activities that you had to pass. And the, the passing criteria was 90% of the contralateral limb. And what they found is, is that athletes at nine months post-op ACL reconstruction, only 13% actually passed all of that criteria based on what the research tells us should be passing criteria. Now, here's the problem, okay? So we've been doing a ton, like I said, we've done 29,000 movement assessments. The, um, the EMI collects 1,500 data points for every single assessment that we do. So we have over 39 million data points related to human movement. And when you look at a data set that massive, there's a lot of things that you learn. And you know, one of the things that we've learned is that a 16-year-old female soccer player moves differently than a 16-year-old lineman who moves differently than a 16-year-old running back. Sure. And what puts one at risk versus another at risk is very, very different. The problem is, is that we have gone off of, and I hate to say this, and I don't want to, I don't want to create a, 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 you know, step on a hornet's nest here, but the FMS has used a passing score for no matter what you are, matter yeah. if you're an athlete, if you're a tactical athlete, firefighter, police officer, 16 year old versus professional football player, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what I will tell you is that it is very different. It's very different by age, by gender, by sport, by position. Um, and all of those things are in, in level of sport, division one versus division two versus division three. So all of those things are factors which should play into it. What it is right now, we don't know. We don't know what normative values are for a 16 year old elite level high school uh, soccer player versus a mediocre soccer player at that same age right so we don't know that yet but we're trying to get to the point some point at some point we will have enough data that we'll be able to do that but right now it's just we're trying to break that out so i think that's you know there's so many flaws with the ways and you know and that's one of the things i love about research you know i i wish and, and mike you and i have talked about this i wish more physical therapists would get actually into the research because it makes you make a lot of questions like why the hell am i measuring L lsi if I can be 100% symmetrical, if you if both sides look like crap, like I still know that person's at risk, and that and that's really where I think we need to look at research, evaluate the research, and then come up with our own questions about, well, does this make sense, right? So like the whole thing I said about the 16-year-old, different positions, different genders, different sports, that to me was a question that's not being answered yet. It's not out there, you know. Yeah. And that's why we're very interested in this software that you have developed because what Joe and I are realizing were these tests weren't making any sense. And I can look at the quality of the movement and say, yeah, they passed, but you know, like, like crap to get to the finish line there. Mm -hmm. Now my analogy is you could floor your car with the emergency brake on and win, but you just destroyed your car to get there, which is what right. athletes are doing. And the parents get stuck on this when as soon as they hear a surgeon say you're ready to run that's all they hear and we talked about this with the surgeon last night and he emphasized that it's very important that those who are working with the athletes in the facilities that have the means to test them such as strength coaches pts trainers yeah. they have the ability to look at this so what we're finding is extremely valuable and and you know you can't account for a surgeon that just says yeah you're ready to run because sometimes they're going by a time-based criteria 
versus sometimes the movement based criteria. So yeah. saying, oh, well, at four months, the tissue should be able to withstand these forces. So you're okay. But we're not looking at the movements to pass. So the, the, the player and the, and the parent gets that in their head. That's all they hear. Right. And then when they see that they're still failing these things, they get upset because they thought they got the green light. And then we're saying, no, you have the red light. And they're getting frustrated because it's clashing. So we're trying to get sure. that information out as to why. So we started using some more concrete stuff from like FMS systems mm -hmm. and, and getting them to understand that you can't just get one answer from an FMS. I know Greg Cook has yeah. emphasized that. And there are some people that are very stuck on that. Well, we did the FMS. They're good. No, it's FMS. It could be a Y balance. It's a sure. motor control screen. It's an FCS. It's a battery of these tests to give you all these information, information to get a better look at the athlete. But as we talked about, the SCS takes time and it's cumbersome, yeah. even though it will show the, the, um, the symmetry, it gives you the data where they are. And then you note down the quality of the movement. It'll look like that. It still takes a lot of time. And if you want to do a bunch of athletes in research, it sounds going to be very efficient to be able to use some type of software. Like you said, this thing can bang things out in 15 minutes and give them a lot of concrete stuff. So that's why I'm very intrigued about this because if we could get this to these clubs and these teams and have these athletes see this and, and understand what's going on, it'll make total sense. You know, I mean, just like this one athlete that Joe had me look at, um, they had been like, I told you, I messaged you. They were going for PT at six months and, and for six months and the PT was stuck on that, that uh, uh, strength comparison. But again, if you're comparing crap to crap, it doesn't matter. That's right. And I found, you know, like 15 things that were wrong. And you could see that the athlete and the parent were very upset. And I'm saying, well, I mean, look, a lot of these things are missed. I mean, there's still deficiencies here, you know, right. and this is why Joe can't do what he needs to do with them because they're not ready for that phase because the foundation is still really bad. Well, you know, in, in how, I mean, you know, let's go back to the base of how are we measuring strength? Are we measuring that with a handheld dynamometer? Or are we doing that with a biodex? Because biodex makes a lot of sense because usually when you're in sports, you sit down in a flexed posture and then maximally contract your quads and your hamstrings. It's a very functional position. I don't think so. Right. So that's, it goes back to, again, part of these flaws in the methodology, you know, the biodex has been used since the sixties and seventies. Like, are we not beyond that? Like, are we seriously not beyond that? That's where we're still at. Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> to me, you know, and, and we did this presentation at combined sections meeting uh, last year when it was in Denver and oh my God, I got chewed up by these, by these PhD biomechanists, you know, researchers in the ACL realm, because, because heaven forbid, I mentioned something that they hadn't thought of and that was speed. Yeah. And that was around the speed of algus and how I feel that is so important based on the data that we're seeing. But again, it, it goes against it goes goes against what we've done traditionally since since I started as a PT in '97. Like if we haven't changed since '97, that's a problem. That's, yeah. that's yeah. a long time without any, yeah. any changes yeah. there. Yeah, you know, and it and, and it goes back to we should be able to leverage. of the reason that we developed the EMI the way that we did, number one. Trent, is, I, I don't mean to cut you off there. Yep. Do me a favor, repeat that again, because that we froze there. Repeat that, what you okay. just talked about there. Yeah, so so part of it is we've not changed for since the, you know, the 90s and the and early 2000s. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that we have to change with technology. It's a big reason or a big driver for why we, developed the EMI that we, the way that we did, because we wanted it to be efficient, that you could use it in mass physicals. 
So we've got this so that we can, I can go to a team and an organization and we can process about 120 athletes a day. So we have multiple systems to do that. I'll give you a perfect example. I'm just in the process right now of scheduling to do 1,750 firefighters, uh, which we're going to be doing over multiple weeks. Wow. But we're, 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 we're running through right. um, about uh, 380 of them in one week. Um, and so, you know, we're getting mass, mass number, or I'm sorry, it's over 480 um, because it's going to take us two and a half weeks to get 1750. So that, that being said, I mean, we're getting mass, mass numbers very quickly and efficiently. The other piece of that is I'm taking the air out of it. I'm taking my eyeballs out of it. I'm no longer relying on Trent Nessler's ability to determine if that's a valgus, how much valgus is that? What yeah. speed is that at? Taking all that subjectivity out of it. Wow. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you about the, you had mentioned very early on, the aggressive ACL return. Mm-hmm. And then you just talked about the, the different level of the athlete, the age, the sport that they're playing. Does that change your protocol and your rehab moving forward? And when you say aggressive, what are your return to play times? Yeah, you know, well, so let me see. Um, so I worked with, uh, I worked in Birmingham uh, with a guy by the name of Kevin Wilk, which in our PT world is very well known. Yep. Uh, and Dr. James Andrews, who's also very well known. Dr. Andrews was always very um, adamant uh, and, and had some good research behind this, that for every month uh, um, less than nine, you add 5% risk with every month. So it, at nine months, you're at a 20% risk. You go down to eight months, you're now at 25. You go down to seven months, you're now at 30. So your risk increases every month that you go less. Gotcha. And that's what the research shows. That being said, you know, I personally feel like we suck at ACL rehab. Um, you know, I, I'll give you a perfect example. You know, I've, I just recently came off a massive knee injury from jujitsu. Uh, posterior lateral corner, I had a medial meniscus, posterior root, uh, medial meniscus from anterior to posterior. Um, I had a uh, MCL tear osteochondral defect on my femur uh, and a, a displaced fracture in my hand. Pretty messed up. Um, I started BFR day two and I was getting messages because I was posting all this uh, on Instagram and I was getting messages in my inst- Instagram inbox going, what in the hell are you doing? Like, why are you starting BFR day two? Right. And quite honestly, why not? You know, what I found is that the earlier I start BFR, aside from, you know, contraindications, like there's some contraindications there, I'm not going to do it. If somebody's having a total knee, you know, and they're on blood thinners, I'm not going to be doing that, right? I, I hate to say this, but I'm 52 years old, so I'm a little bit of an older athlete. You know, I have no health complications. I got no risk for clots or anything like that. Why would I not start that, you know? All right. Right. And what I found is, you know, I was able to go back to the mats three months ahead of schedule. Three you know, months. Three ahead. months ahead of schedule. I am back now probably 70%. Uh, percent. You know, I've, uh, this week alone, I trained five days this week on the mats. Yeah, I've been seeing um, the posts. Yeah, which, you know, I, I, I got off, I'm, te- I'm, I'm 11 weeks uh, as of uh, today. 
So, you know, again, you know, part of that, obviously, you know, I'm healthy, you know, I've worked out my whole life. I have good nutrition. I do good hydration. I do everything, all the pieces, Mike, like we talk about, right? Like you need to do your nutrition. You need to do your hydration. You need to have your, your recovery supplements. I do all of that stuff. Right. Um, but I'm a firm believer that my quads came back uh, faster because I started BFR early on. So when I say aggressive, what I don't mean is getting them back, back to the field Sooner. faster because, right. because that, that was a big flaw. So I'll tell you, so I travel all over the U S and in the ECL protocols from Pennsylvania to California are drastically different. Mm -hmm. We still have some areas of the country where they will put you in a locked knee brace for four weeks after until four weeks. Wow. After Complete ACL immobilization. Wow. After an ACL reconstruction. And then, and then you start PT two weeks out after your ACL reconstruction. Wow, that's six weeks. I know when I was in Birmingham, we started ACL reconstruction the next day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so, you know, there's, there's such a drastic difference in the way that we approach ACLs across the country. There is no standardized program of uh, the way that we do it. And in my personal opinion is kinesiophobia would not be such a big issue if we started single limb training earlier, yeah. if we got people huh. on one leg faster we started getting them used to putting that, that, that feeling comfortable on that limb, having control of that limb. The, what I find is, and I teach this in my courses, the earlier you start single limb training, the less kinesiophobia you're going to have. Yeah, yeah. I try to get them to even just weight shift onto that thing as soon as I can, you mm -hmm. know. Um, holding on, I mean, so, you know, so getting used to it and I feel like it's going to buckle, but something to get that feedback from the floor into throughout the whole limb, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like, you know, and again, it goes back to do, how do we, so <clears throat> my orthopedic surgeons, very good orthopedic surgeon. Um, he wanted me non-weight bearing for eight weeks because of the uh, posterior lateral or because of the posterior root tear. Uh, and then also because of the OCD. And ironically, uh, the couple of days after my surgery, I was looking through American Journal of Sports Medicine and there happened to be a paper published on posterior root tears in earlier weight bearing. So I sent it to him. I sent it to him and then I sent him what I was going to try to do. And he's like, you know what? This is a good study. You're a healthy guy. You know what you should be looking for. Let's go ahead. And uh, I started, I started weight bearing at about five weeks out, um, which again, he wanted me to wait until uh, eight weeks before I even started weight bearing. Right. Right. You know, so at six weeks, I was completely off crutches. That being, that being said, you know, um, not everybody can do that. You know, it's right. again, that, that goes back to evaluating the research, applying that to your patient population, and then monitoring your patient as you go through. I think, you know, we get stuck in as physical therapists and I see that more today. Like I, like I said, I graduated back in 97, you know, we were, we weren't given a protocol. We were given guidance, right? And now today people come out, it's like, I have to do X, Y, and Z with my patient. As soon as I'm done with X, Y, and Z, I send East M, right? Yeah. And, and, and what it should be, again, is a guidance on how do we do that? But quite honestly, and Mike, you and I both know this, we all know this, is that you can't, you can't do that with every PT. Because right. then you're going to start screwing people up. Yeah. 
Well, the, what we're finding is that a lot of these kids coming in are so under the mark of basic function that there's so much that needs to be done that it's mind blowing. And it's like, you try to hit every mark. So, you know, you use a great example of the spiral technique for, for the, you know, the RDL, which is awesome. And I've been implementing that immediately because it's a great concept because I've been doing other banded techniques. I'm like, this is great with the CLX. And I sent it to Joe and now we're starting to use it with a lot when they're appropriate for that. But the problem is, is trying to get them to some of these movements takes forever. They have locked up ankles. We're talking like these kids are playing on five degrees of dorsiflexion. The anterior tips don't work. The feet are all scrunched up. You know, the calves are just stiff. And then on top of that, they have all this weakness. So it's like, where do we start? So it's like, I have to start them with some basic table stuff. They can't even do a side plank raise, modified with the knees bent. Yeah. So we're talking about the performance measure of a side plank. Yeah. I can't even get them knees bent, going up without the shoulder hurting and them crunching up and trying to get them to understand pelvic control. So it's like, we have all this basic stuff. So I'm like hammering them with stuff to do. And it can be overwhelming, but I'm like, look, like, we have to build a foundation somewhere, but they are so under the mark because it's been soccer, 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 and nothing else. It's TikTok yeah. and Snapchat soccer. And yeah. as they do, they, they hop off the couch from a banana position in TikTok, doing their little things with their friends, and they go onto the field and play soccer. No warm up, yeah. you know, like nothing. So they're so, so it's just so like, I guess like malnourished in a way from just motor control and even nutrition. We, we have an athlete that comes in, I'm like, uh, you know, uh, I asked him, when would you eat? He's like, oh, I had toast at 11. I'm like, dude, it's six o'clock. Like, come on, man. He's yawning when he's walking around. <laughs> if he listens to this, he knows who he is. Yeah. Yes, he yep. Yep. Like, guys, we got so much work to do here. So that's why, like, trying to build this network of this education with, with guys like you, Trent, is so important because people got to hear this stuff. They got to understand. Well, you know, and that's the other thing too, is I think, you know, for me, ACL rehab is comprehensive. It's not just the PT aspect that we normally do. Um, I talk to athletes about hydration. Um, yeah. I give them a P chart and show them where their P should be, um, how to monitor that, the color and the odor of it, um, and what they should be doing for hydration. Um, I have them do a food log. I have them write three days worth of food so I can see what is their actual intake uh, that they're taking in. So I can see and give them some guidance on nutrition. I was telling an athlete, like, do you want to run like a Ferrari or do you want to run like a Pinto? Because the gas you put in that engine is going to determine what you get out of that engine. Yep. And if you're putting shit in the engine, yeah, yeah. you're going to get shit out. Right. Yeah. So, so it's, you know, to me, you know, and it's weird because I think as physical therapists, the majority of our profession rarely talks about hydration, rarely talks about nutrition and how can you not? Well, most like, of our such a key part. I mean, I can admit in my early career, I didn't really know enough because I didn't get it. And it wasn't until I got more competitive with athletics and I got my own sponsors and I started to get the right information that I started learning. So I knew where to kind of direct people, but even then I'm still not hundred percent. So I'm trying to learn more. So let me, let me say, you know what, that, that is a, I agree with you. Uh, and I think that that's just pure laziness on our profession side yeah. because, because you didn't get it. Well, shit, I didn't get, I didn't get three quarters of what I got. Right. Yeah. You have to go get it. Yeah. You know, you know, as a, as a clinician, that is your professional responsibility that if you're going to treat athletes, yeah. treat freaking athletes, treat yeah. them right. Yeah. Treat them from yeah. every aspect. Yeah. I think that that's part of it. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, these, these kids come to me and, 
again, not a knock on any of these PTs because I don't even know a lot. But if you didn't play a sport, you weren't athletic, you're not in the same mindset of getting yeah. this kid ready to play soccer. This is a physical sport where they're playing 80 to 90 minutes and you got them sitting down being super passive. Like we need to get them fired up, get, you know, get moving. I, right. You know, like it's just, it's just too slow moving. And this is where, you know, um, Mike and I really just kind of fit together. Like I, I, yeah. I was talking to him about this and it just, he made sense in what he was doing. And then when I started sending people to him, they were coming to me and they were ready for what I needed to do. You know, sure. I know my lane. I'm a strength coach, rehab specialist after the physical therapy has done their yeah. job. You know, I'm not, and I, and I find that I'm trying to do this stuff when they're here because I know that I can't progress into other things. They need to, you know, so I do what I can do. Yeah. And if I just kind of run into that brick wall, I'll, you know, I'll try to, First, I'm, I'm always open with the physical therapists that, yeah. you know, that come in. I, I try to reach out to them to let them know that, you know, this is what I'm doing. And this is, you know, this is the program that I'm running. It's very unique in this area. Nobody's doing, you know, what we're doing and, and bringing, you know, people on like you is, you know, is amazing stuff. So we can see the forward thinking, not right. the, not the past thinking. Well, you know, I'll tell you, Joe, part, part of it is, is that therapists are intimidated by you. You have a knowledge that they don't have. Right. And they don't like that. Right. You know, and that's, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a flaw with the system as a whole, you know, what it really should be is a comprehensive approach and being able to talk to your strength coach and being yep. able to, but you know what, dude, that it, we all know that exists, not just in the general population per, that exists in pro sports, exactly. you know, even at, even at the pro level. I mean, there's a lot of teams that the uh, strength house is not talking to the athletic training side or the PT side. You know, and it's just, it's a, it's, you know, you know, the light bulb doesn't go on so early because when you come out as a new grad, you're so overwhelmed with just figuring out how to try to deal with people. That's why I never understood how some of these, you know, really, really introverted individuals still making a profession. They're very book smart, but they have to be able to, you have to look at someone as a human being. Mm -hmm. You have to connect with them too, you know, because I even have nutrition, uh, you know, conversations, even some of like the elderly patients, they think that cramping is a hundred percent related to hydration, eating bananas. And I'm like, well, if you're looking at the latest research, it's not, you know, I mean, <laughs> you're trying to lift your butt up off a table five times, your hamstrings are cramping. I mean, but I see you got a giant thing, a bottle of water there, you know? Yeah. So it's like, you have to are drinking some, and I can't imagine that you're overhydrating yourself. I mean, maybe you are, but the, the, the process that maybe most of these average people are hyponatremia, I, I don't think so, you know? So there's other things that are playing in there, but when you're going through this, and like you said, you know, the, the sports physical therapy stuff is a specialty area, and a lot of things are being missed, and you start pulling these components where you're saying, well, if we want to be recognized as doctors of anything, we have to start promoting ourselves of that, that we have the knowledge base of this, and we have mm -hmm. to know that we have an understanding of this, and saying, look, I have a basic understanding of this, but if you want to get a prescribed, you know, uh, a program or a meal plan, you know, understanding where to find resources for dietitians, nutritionists things like that and get people in the right direction because it's only going to do them better. I mean, how are you going to be able to rehab from a major surgery when you're eating Cheetos? <laughs> right. You know, you know and, and the other thing is too, is it, it requires a more informed consumer, you know, yeah. at the, at the end of the day it requires mom and dad to, to be more informed. You know, yeah. um, I, I was, uh, and this was last year, but I was doing a presentation in Texas and got into a conversation with a group of orthopedic surgeons 
and the average return to sport for uh, Dallas at that time was nine months. But then this new group came in and in order to capture part of the market share, they said, we can get our ACL reconstructions back to sport in six months. They didn't do that because it's the best thing for the athlete. They mm -hmm. simply did that to get more volume. Yeah. And that's where an informed parent needs to come into play. Yeah. And, and the guy who's offering a nine month return to play, he's like, it sucks because I know that's not the right thing for the athlete. Yeah. I can't bash that guy for doing it. I can't bash them professionally, right? And, and, and let people know that. But that's, that, that is unfortunately a lot of times what drives it. And parent, what parents think is, well, gosh, you get them back in six months, you must be the better surgeon. That's what it is. Yeah. You have a better technique. That yeah. I find that as, as a sticking point too, because when, he, when these kids want to get back and they're at nine months, that nine to 12 month gap is my hardest conversations with the athlete yeah. and, and the parent because 85% of my business is female soccer players age 13 to 18, Oof. right? Yeah. And they're not, or they haven't really been strength training prior to this, right? Yes. So Correct. they have no foundational strength to begin with. So when we get to nine months, I'm trying to explain to them that we're just getting back to where you were before this injury happened. Now the real work begins, right? Right now you should be on a six month strength training program. So now Absolutely. you're at nine to 15 months, a solid strength training program with a slow progression still to me, I still, you know, I, I, and again, when you were saying aggressive, I'm trying to figure out. Well, when I get to that nine months and I understand that it's case by case, you right. know, everyone's going to kind of, you know, move a little bit differently, but um, I still find that that nine to 12 and, and Mike and I have had several, you know, that were in around that 12 to 13 month range that, that uh, had some retears. So, well, and I'll tell you, you know, if you, if you looked at uh, any of Timothy Hewitt's work, you know, he actually published a paper that said, really, what we should be doing is not returning for 24 months. And, and quite honestly, I don't know if people will ever do that. Well, that was a um, point that was brought up last night with yeah. Dr. Seward's about time-based and criteria-based yeah. and, you know, and where we are in America compared mm -hmm. to uh, the UK, as far as if a sophomore were to get hurt at the end of their season, and you're talking two years they basically have now lost yeah. out of their, their scholarship. Well, you know, and that's it that you brought up an interesting point because people try to do that where they make comparisons of ACL research in Australia, in the UK, because there's some really interesting research coming out of Australia and the UK. What people need to understand is that socialized medicine, you don't even have an MRI until you are six months post injury. Yeah. So you're, you're not even diagnosed with wow. an ACL rupture until you're six months post-op or not six months post-op post post injury, post -injury. wow yeah. so wow. you're not having surgery for like seven or eight months so there's that injury. six months right there right right Trent, so that, that's very interesting so i mean continue but i was just going to ask if you could touch a little bit on the specialization because we talked a little bit of that last night that the biggest waiver against is these parents feel their kids need to be in this stuff since they're age four and all year round because they get the pressure from these coaches from these clubs that 
You have to be present. You have to be available. It's your best chance of getting seen, getting, you know, the, um, the recruiters, all that. And, and Joe and I keep saying, you know, is that third club really worth it? Because if, if you're really going to no. do well, you, you know, if, touch on that. I mean, I really got to hear this. <laughs> well, you know, and, and there is a ton of research out there that shows not only are you at less risk uh, for an ECL injury if you do multi-sport, multi-sports versus specialization, Mm -hmm. um, not only are you at less risk, but you are a better athlete if you are. Thank you. Exactly. I was just going to say the same thing. You know, in, in there's, there's multiple studies out there that show that matter of fact, they did, there was a really, uh, uh, last year, there was a really good study and I'll have to look up the reference for you. There was a really good study that was done last year where they looked at NBA players in some of the top performing NBA players all the way through high school were multi-sport athletes. Some of your best athletes out there were multi-sport athletes. And so, you know, the, the problem is, is that doing a single sport, specializing in a single sport um, puts you at much greater risk. You, you know, it, there, it used to be back in our day that you had soccer season and then you did track season and maybe you did wrestling season and then you came back to soccer. Now it's just like soccer all year long. And that's, you know, you got to give the body rest. You got to move the body in, in different ways. You got to train the body in different ways. You know, I'm a firm believer that multi-sport athletes have better core control. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't prove that yet. Um, I'm looking to prove that. Um, but, but core control is, is absolutely essential. And in so many times they get that specialized aspect and it's just one way, you know? Now, what about these kids that, you know, the parents say, well, my kid's happy. They love it. All their friends are playing. They don't want, they don't want to miss out. You know, that, that's a barrier there. And, and you know that the, the kid is definitely at risk because you're looking at movement patterns and, you know, you can take someone where maybe you treat them yeah. and, and you're keeping up with your exercises and not doing it, you know? Some, sometimes I'm a little bit more blunt. Yeah, you know what? It's fun if all your friends are driving 100 miles an hour. Maybe you should drive 100 miles an hour too. Yeah. All your friends are enjoying it because they're taking drugs. Maybe you should take drugs too. Yeah. Well, sometimes yeah. you just got to step up and be a parent. Yeah. And yeah. Say, no, this is for your own safety. Yeah. We're going to do one sport and you want to do other sports. We'll go other sports, yeah. but you have a season. Yeah. You have a season for a reason. Yeah. Trent, you know, I, brought, I brought that up last night. Um, my younger son is a hell of an athlete uh, and he played baseball, basketball, soccer, but he was a very, very good soccer player but he loved basketball. So when it came to wintertime, he wanted to shut down from soccer and play basketball. And because he was one of the, the better players on the team, obviously they needed him, right? They need sure. right. where, you know, where's our best player or where's one of our best players. I said, well, he's playing basketball because he wants to be a kid and he wants to play other sports, you know? And yeah. to this point, knock on wood, he hasn't had any major injuries, knees, ankles, things like that. And, and he's an all around athlete. Right. Right. You know, and I think, I think sometimes parents are just afraid to say no. You know, they're afraid to tell coaches no. They don't coaches want to. Coaches didn't like the it. Coach. They didn't like it. Yeah. I became the, I, I became the bad guy, but. I don't care. You know, I, right, exactly. I, at the end of the day, I, it, you know what? At the end of the day, my kid. I don't care. My yeah. kid. Yeah. It's not yeah. your kid. Yeah. My kid. Yeah. Exactly. I, I want my kid to be healthy when he's 20. Yeah. You only care about him right now. Yeah. I when care they, about when him they come in time. for the assessment, I literally sit there with the parent yeah. and the athlete and I say, I'm going to treat you like you're my child. Yes. If it, I don't it, think that you're ready I, to I play think, yeah. and I wouldn't put Vincent on the field. Yeah. I'm not putting, you know, Sally on the field. Yep. You're yep. just not ready for it yet. Yep. You know, 
And I, I hate that. And, and that's what I'm saying. Like when I get to that nine month mark, I'm still their friend. You're right. Yeah. And then I get the nine to 12 months and now I become like the enemy. Like, yeah. Oh, he, what is he going to do? Tell us now. Like, yeah. I'm only telling you what I see. Yeah. You get yeah. better then then the answer is yeah. going to get better, yeah. you know? So. Well, in, in, you know, and in, in, in sometimes it's a motivation to the athlete, right? Mm-hmm. Dude, you, you want, you want to move better, hydrate, nutrition, do everything that you should be doing to make this better because right now the system's not moving well. Trent at a, at a collegiate level, cause you know, there's a big discrepancy between high school versus college. And we had this conversation with one of the athletes, she wants to go to D1 and she was actually scared of meal programs and meal plans. And I said, no, actually some of those meal plans that they get you on are really good yeah. and they're covering your bases. You can still have fun and, and eat other stuff, but it's to make sure that before your afternoon workout session, you have a solid fuel base. And it's not, like I said, garbage and you're eating shit before you work out, right. you need fuel. But are you seeing at least some difference at the collegiate level? You know, because I know this is a little bit more organized sessions where they actually have them in there and they're training them and the more team or high school is just like, it's a free for all, you know? Right. You know, and, and it really depends on, on the college. It depends on the level of college, like your D3. No, not so much D2 a little bit. Um, I had the, the fortunate opportunity to work with uh, Alabama, which is like the creme de la creme. Like they go in, they have a cafeteria just for the athletes. So you go into the athletic complex, there is a cafeteria in there. You go in there for breakfast. That's where you get your breakfast. They are making sure they print out a schedule for you, a menu for you as an athlete. This is what you're eating and you just eat it. It's good stuff. Tastes right, great. right, right. And you're filling, just, boom, this is, but, this is, but somebody's taking care of it for you. Yeah, and, and yeah. you know, I go back to the athletes. I'm like, well, why do they do that? Do they do that? Cause they just like to spend more money and they just think that it's a cool thing to do. They do it cause it works. Yeah. They yeah. do it because it works because it helps them win championships because it helps them keep their athletes healthy, helps them keep them on the field because they know when they put junk in the system, when they don't do those things, when you don't eat right, you don't sleep right. When you don't sleep right, you don't heal and you don't perform at optimal levels. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, there's. Can't be said any simpler than that, right? Yeah. Right. Now, speaking of that, um, I know we didn't talk enough about the BFR, but were you saying you were doing, there's some research going on seeing BFR's effects on the ACL graft, maybe getting revascularization earlier. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's two effects to BFR. There's one that's a localized effect and that's really, you know, as you're exercising the muscle, um, let me step back for a second. How's BFR work? Basically what you do is you put the cuff on, you know, the artery has muscle to it. The vein does not. So when you tighten on the cuff, you basically collapse the vein, but the artery is still allowing blood to flow into the muscle. Eventually like a balloon, the muscle is going to fill up with enough blood that it can't take anymore. So as you're exercising the muscle and pulling all that oxygen off, off of that blood, the muscle eventually starts to become tired. Once it becomes tired, then what ends up happening is that you're continuing with the exercise is that the muscle starts to recruit more, more motor units. That's why you get better quad control after an ACL reconstruction, because you're getting more of that distal quad actually being recruited early on in the process at very low loads. All this is done at very low loads. But the second thing that happens is there's a systemic effect and that's, that's the biochemical reactions that result from this, right? So as you go through that process, as pH changes, that stimulates growth hormone release, 
So there is a massive increase in growth hormone release. But the other thing that's released is what is called IGF-1, insulin growth hormone factor one. And what that does is it actually causes an increase in bone healing. So, so what the what the thought is, and from what some of the, what they're seeing is that they're seeing that the graphs are taking faster uh, when there's early application of BFR. And what they're associating that with is the fact that there's that insulin growth, that IGF-1 that's being released, that's causing that bone healing to occur within the graft site uh, at, a, at, a quicker, at a quicker point. Are there certain yeah. exercises that they're they're looking at? Are they doing open chain? No, yeah, or? you know, uh, it it really starts with uh, open kinetic chain exercises. You know, just doing your quad sets, your your straight leg raises. It doesn't matter what you do with BFR, you're going to get that result. You know, it as you know, the biggest mistake that PTs do is they think BFR is only one stage. They think it's okay. We're early stage open kinetic chain only. No. No, it should be used with, with closed kinetic chain. You know, I'm, I'm well past, I'm, I'm back on the mats. I'm, I used it today. I still use it as part of my performance. Does I that mean, become part of your, your warm up routine? So, so two things. Number for me still, you know, I'm, I'm not at hundred percent. So I use it for my cardio. You can actually get an increase in your VO2 max when you combine it with your cardio. So I'm using it in, in for jujitsu uh, where the, the, level I'm at, we're usually doing five minute rounds. So we do five to 10 minute rounds. So your, your gas tank's got to be really, really freaking good. So I'm constantly pushing, constantly pushing my cardio with VFR. Um, so there's that piece to it. The other thing is, is that we actually have a program that we're developing for our competition team to use that as a part of their warmups, because what we want to do is we want to fatigue them early on uh, as a part of their warmups mm -hmm. so that when they, when they get into really uh, awful situations, number there's there, I'm, I don't know how much people know about jujitsu, but there's two aspects in my mind. There's a couple of aspects to it. Number one is the fatigue mm -hmm. and, and the loss of like thinking through yeah, the process, yeah, yeah. The very much like part, a chess yeah. match. Like, yeah, yeah. like, what are they baiting me for? What am I yeah. doing? Where are my elbows at? Keeping it all in nice and tight and everything. So there's that mental aspect to it. But then there's also the physical aspect to it, right? Can I still do an explosive shrimp to get out of the position? Can I still do an explosive uh, uh, a sit up, right? So there's, there's that aspect to it. So for, for our jujitsu guys, what I typically have them do is I have them do that at the beginning to kind of fatigue themselves out. And then they'll do some heavy rolls nice. so that they can be going in in a fatigue state. Like this is what it's going to be like in competition. For black belts, mm -hmm. they do 10 minute rounds. So for our black belts, man, they got to they got to have a good full gas tank and be able to function when you're completely tired and somebody is smashing you down and they're trying to choke the crap out of you. Yeah. You got to be able to know how to walk through that in your head, yeah. but also be able to physically walk through it. Right. So it would probably make sense to use blood flow maybe with a certain amount of exercises and then challenge that athlete with the maybe more demanding things. For example, with a soccer player doing like the spiral technique yeah, RDL yeah, yeah, as the last exercise on the massive fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. So I do know there was some, there's been research out that said doing some of those stability things when very fatigued, you get more neuromuscular input. So, so great point. So uh, we developed a program called ACL Play It Safe. This was a program that was designed with uh, myself, Kramer and Theraband. 
this program was out there for, it was only recently, the app was recently taken off the market because it's owned by Select Medical. Okay. Um, but up until that point, we had done it with over 10,000 athletes. And one of the pieces of the program is what we call fatigue state training. And what I mean by that is we would have them go through their practice, use practice as the fatigue state inducing exercise. And then we would go into this fatigue state training and it did two things for us. Number one, I didn't have to do the volume that I would normally do to get the same training effect because they're already tired. Yep. And number two is from a specificity standpoint, I actually got to work on training them in the state in which they're most likely going to get injured. So really focusing on their core mm -hmm. control, really focusing on their single limb control and doing all of that in a fatigue state. The key is, is making sure they're doing it with right, the right mechanics, because, because that will be the, the default pattern that they go to when they are fatigued. So fatigue state training to me is huge. You know, it's, it's funny because like, if you look at all the ACL injury prevention programs out there, except for the ACL plate safe program, they all do them before practice. I've always felt like number one, from an efficiency stand, that's originally why I started doing is from an efficiency standpoint, because I knew I wouldn't have to do the same volume because they're already tired. And what we found was, is that our injury reduction rate was huge. Like we had, we not only ACLs were over 90%, these are small. So our sample size was about a hundred. So that was that hundred, that hundred percent was not significant in, in the means of, cause there's only two or three injuries per year, right? So it wasn't statistically significant. What was statistically significant is we reduced all lower extremity injuries by over 58.2%. Wow. So by doing this fatigue state training, so that's ankle injuries, knee injuries, hip injuries. Oh, and by the way, we also reduced concussion. Believe it or not, what we've seen, and there was a study published by Johnson last year, American Journal of Sports Medicine, that showed that an athlete who moves better gets concussed less. Because the thought is, the body's not right. Well, and and they're avoiding the concussive event, so now they've got the more agility, the more speed to right. actually avoid they're, that event versus actually getting. So not so much the sitting duck. Right. Right. Exactly. Speaking of cognition, Trent, you said something interesting to me last time we we spoke that there's some stuff to show that after an injury like ACL, there are some cognitive changes that occur. There, there are changes, uh, neuroplastic changes that occur in the higher centers and, and those don't just come back. And so there is some visual motor learning that we do uh, to help train those uh, neuroplastic changes. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a device out there by, it was developed by a strength coach actually. Blaze uh, pods? Uh, uh, not the blaze pods. It's actually, it's called the, um, uh, Oh God, I just drew a blank on it. Um, I'll get the name of it for you. I'll think of it in just a second. But basically it's a, it's a platform that's got five discs on it and you have an iPad in front of you. And on the iPad, one of those discs lights up and you're supposed to touch it without looking. The key okay. is you're not looking. Yeah. Because yeah. if you look, you're bringing in your visual system. The yeah. idea is that you're using just your awareness, body awareness to be able to touch that. Um, and what studies show is that when you do that kind of training is that you actually elicit those neuroplastic change, changes in the higher centers that typically is not trained after an ACL reconstruction. Because gotcha. they're, constant, they're constantly trying yeah. to look down at their feet. So yeah. the less you can get them to look down and to look at other things, 
it's bringing part of that cognitive piece back in there as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly what a field and the blaze, the blaze pods are good too, but you look at it. Uh-huh. So you're, you're looking at it when you touch it. So you're not, you're not making that connection between, you know, not that you're not taking the visual system out of it. So gotcha. to speak. Gotcha. So when we were talking about late stage or you were talking about the, uh, the return to play there, how far along do you take them or how far along are you in the continuum of care? And when would you start to do that, that, um, that fatigue in the, in the beginning? And then the other part to that is if I don't have an athlete that goes out to a practice and then comes to me, what are some ways that they would do it if they were in the gym already? Yeah. So, so a couple of things. Number one, um, I implement parts of the ACL play safe program very early in the rehab. So there is, there's some core training pieces to it that I'll add early on. You know, I think everybody should be doing planks and side planks. Um, we've got some really interesting data on planks and side planks. Um, and, and we know, you know, there was just a Jong study that was published just this last year um, that showed that if you uh, lack strength and endurance on plank and side plank, you're three times more likely to tear your ACL. So, so there's a lot of really good data out there on core stabilization. So I start that very early on. I have them do that as a part of their program. The single limb training stuff, I don't typically have them start that until they're doing that in the clinic and they're doing that safely and they can do all of that. Everything that I do with the ACL play safe, they have to be able to do, demonstrate that in the clinic first and demonstrate that with good technique and safe. So once they're doing that clinically in the clinic and they're doing it safe, I will start to implement that as a part of their program. So, so it's not meant to replace a strength and conditioning program. So, Mm -hmm. so you asked about when do I have them do that? If they're doing a strength and conditioning program, I have them do it after it. If they're doing running, I have them do it after it. So whatever that, that fatigue inducing activity is, it can be hooking them up with BFR and having them go through a series of BFR exercises, you know, full body weight squats, things like that. And then moving into that fatigue state training. The beauty of BFR is you can, you can induce fatigue pretty early on in the process. Gotcha. Yeah. That's been a little bit of what I've been playing around with, with the straps, you know, trying to like superset stuff doing, um, you know, sets of, of eight, you know, finding the occlusion that, you know, works something, you know, and then, uh, going ahead and supersetting it with something else because you have to get at least a minimum of what, like 15 15 reps yeah so there's a couple of protocols there's 30 15 15 15 right yeah, that way that. and then there's 30 30 30 right and, and for me i've actually been pushing kind of you know they they tell you a total time of occlusion should not exceed you know 30 minutes um what i do is i get on the bike um i've got a sprint protocol i do on the bike you know, for myself, you know, um, I'm typically doing that 30 minutes. So I do five minutes on five minutes off, five minutes yeah. on five minutes off today. Just um, release the pressure for five minutes. Yes. Yeah. So I, I okay. put the pressure on for five minutes. I release the pressure for five minutes. I put the pressure on for five minutes. Okay. So then, then I went to do uh, leg press. So I did uh, uh, 30, 30, 30 on leg press. Um, and I did six sets of that. <laughs> And then I went to uh, leg extension, abduction, adduction, mm-hmm. did 30, 30, 30, and I did six sets on that. Okay. So 12 sets total, but it's 30, 30, 30. So it's a lot more than that. And my legs were trashed. Um, that I'd being said, so. <laughs> yeah, right? 
but 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 it helped it it's it's it again you know i'm not doing heavy weights you know on my leg press i'm doing maybe 30 percent of my max you know there is i still have you know with heavy resistance training i still have you know some joint line pain so i'm being cognizant of that i'm still working around that um in jujitsu i'm not i still can't do stand up yet so i can't throw you know, you know, you don't throw switch kicks in, in uh, jujitsu, but I also do Muay Thai. So mm-hmm. I can't throw any switch kicks or anything like that yet. So I'm still not doing judo throws or anything like that. Starting all my game from the ground mm-hmm. because of that joint line pain, but you know, it's progressing me along that process. I'm well beyond 30 minutes of compression time. Um, but again, I'm getting really good results out of it. Um, you know, and I think, I think as a practitioner, you know, we have the, the, the set protocols, but I think that's part of the art of what we do, right? We have the science of what we do, and then we have the art of what we do, you know? And I would say, you know, I come from a strength and conditioning background. I would say that's where the art comes in, right? Like we can be super creative with the yeah. ways that we apply the science. Yeah. So I remember going back to some of the information, um, it was one of the physicians was talking about you can do heavier resistance training with it on for mm-hmm. performance. Yep. So obviously that'd be really hard to do like a 70% of your one RM for 15 <laughs> reps, but can you get something like doing heavier sets? Um, that's not like crushing your soul, but yep. you know, good weight with the BFR. If you want to do some heavier squats and you're doing maybe like triples, doubles, or even like sets of six. And then you're doing that where you're trying to just, you know, do that rest 60 seconds, do that and do a bunch of sets and then maybe uh, burn out with maybe like body weight squats or something else that challenges that, you know, a different parameter like that for performance measures. So that's what I've been kind of playing around with too, you know, um, because sometimes you want to be able to get that stimulus of training a little bit heavy, but you're not trying to crush your legs and not sore the next, sore the next day we can't run or whatever. So um, I'm kind of fascinated by it, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, and and I've gone as heavy as 50 to 60%. Okay. I probably wouldn't do 70 to 80% because I still stick in that 30, 15, 15, 15, or 30, 30, 30. Okay. Um, you know, it, it, um, you know, prior to my injury, it definitely helped my, my squats and my leg presses go up, you know, they, and there's a lot of studies out there and, and I presented to you guys, you know, there's, there's studies out there that shows that it will improve your one rep max for squat, your one rep max for bench, your one rep max for uh, leg press Um, you name it, you know, so there is a way to apply it, you know, um, you know, personally, I, you know, um, I agree with Dr. Paulus, you could, in theory, you can probably do that. Um, But in application, it's a hell of a lot harder, you know, so for me, you know, 60% is about the max that I've been able to go. Um, And I push it pretty damn hard. Yeah. And what about, you know, the hypertrophy? Because, you know, another thing, I mean, being, being an athlete, you know, people want to look good. And that's yeah. also a thing with also high school collegiate level athletes. They also want to look good too, but they have to understand that, you know, when you're training for a sport, there's going to be certain aesthetics that come with a certain sport, you know? So, I mean, a soccer right. player is going to look different than a volleyball player, a yeah. football player, et cetera, but they still want to look fit. So they're like, okay, well, if I'm doing some training or I'm doing some time away and I want to maybe do some stuff and not like injure myself. Can I do BFR and then I can do some upper body stuff yeah. and get a benefit where I can still look good. You know, that might sound appealing to them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, I, they, you know, there's a lot of studies out there that show that, you know, the growth hormone, I mean, your, your growth hormone release um, is uh, equivalent to 
heavy resistance training. So the, the growth hormone concentration levels are similar to when you're, you're doing 80%, 90% of one RM. Wow. So the, the growth hormone releases are significant, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't know if I use this in lab, but I, I had a, uh, an athlete uh, who was a jujitsu uh, black belt, ruptured his biceps uh, in an arm bar. And um, he came back and I started BFR on him very early on in the process. He was doing PT uh, with his PT. Um, I wasn't seeing him, but I trained with him. So I started him on BFR, started him very early on in the process he got back to the mats um, about three months ahead of schedule and he went into his doctor and he had his blood work done and she's like, holy cow, your testosterone is off the chart. Like, what are you, like, what supplements are you doing? And he's like, I'm not doing, I'm not doing any supplements. Yeah. You know, so, you know, it makes me wonder, makes me wonder. Cause that was a, it was a great, I, I mean, because he was doing it religiously he got back. I mean, in the guy is a, he's a powerhouse. He's like 220 and he's about my height. And he's just, he's ex, ex special forces, just a, a go getter. Right. So he was, he was doing uh, uh, farmer carries up and down the street, you know, with BFR on, I mean, it's, it's the kind of athlete you want to work with. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like bring them uh, straps over here right. tonight. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So when, when he saw his testosterone levels were up like that, he was just like, man, this is amazing. You know, now the occlusion pressure has to be at least minimum 20, 30 percent. Yes. Right? Yeah. So but now you said more fit people would occlude uh, sooner. So I noticed that with me playing around with it, I've actually my tolerance has gotten better with it. I could actually get those things two full clicks around and they feel pretty snug and tight. Sure. But the arms sure. are still real sensitive. The yeah. arms, it's yeah. like I can only go like not even like a fourth. And then it's like, if I don't do it, I get yeah. tingling, you know? Yeah. So you've yeah. got to find. Well, you something. have to understand though, too. I mean, look at your fat there versus yeah. like, you know, yeah. the, right. the typical Tennessean who's got like, you know, you know, globs of fat right there. You, know, <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to go, you don't have yeah. to go through that. So, you know, the, the leaner the athlete is what I find the leaner the athlete is the less pressure they actually need. So just keep track for the athlete where they're feeling yeah. it. And, and keep track of that and then keep track of basically, you know, the reps, the schemes, things like that. Yep. So, yep. cause they can keep the pressure basically the same and they yep. can maybe just increase the reps or the weight. And they're like, that's yes. the pressure that yep. works, the pressure that works. And it's still well, the same. The other thing is too, is I increase my, my own intensity. Like when I work out, you know, it's, it's 30, uh, you do a, um, uh, 30 reps, uh, 30 second rest, 30 reps, 30 second rest, 30 reps, 60 second rest. Right. Okay. So what I do is I do 30, 30, 30 second, uh, uh, set 30 second rest, 30 uh, reps, 30 second rest, 30 reps. And then I do 30 second rest before I start the next one. Okay. So again, you know, you can, you can increase the intensity by simply decreasing the the between each individual set. Now I saw on, on the videos that you had in the course, you had a girl doing like a high intensity workout. It was like one thing to the next. Yeah. Um, and we know a lot of people on a time crunch now are very appealed to that, you know, with the growing thing of like the hip yep. training, the CrossFit, you know, yep. et cetera. So if I have an athlete, you know, like, well, how can I get time with training between school and things like that? If I'm like, I only have a 30 minute window. Can you challenge them with BFR and do a high intensity thing where we're doing, okay, you know, X amount of calories on the assault bike with BFR. Then we're going to do some, you know, um, you know, box squats, maybe some pull-ups, do that a little mini circuit. Yep. And then you're like, you know, uh, I guess what, at every five minutes, release yep. the, 
pressure. Yeah, and so I, I, end up taking that, I end up taking that cardiovascular protocol okay. and applying that. Okay. Interesting. So there you go. So that's, so you could get bang out, get twice the effect yeah. in 30 minutes, a quick workout. Yeah. I tell you, you know, it's, it, you can, you can get very, very intense with that. Yeah. Um, Mo uh, is the, the, the lady that we did that with, and she's, she's actually a professional boxer. Okay. Um, and we did box jumps with her. We did a lot of different, we did uh, ball throws and things yeah, like that. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it is that you can, you can literally reduce their amount of resistance, make it, you know, almost like a rest day and they will be cashed by the end of the time they're done without the physiological wear down of the muscle. Now, what about occluding all four limbs versus? I was like, just going to say that. You know, so, like, <laughs> so around yeah. that, like, is that another intensity thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the more the more the more cuffs you involve, the more intensity you get. Okay. You know, so so for our uh, competitive jujitsu folks, because they're they're competing at a high level, we'll typically do four cuffs on them. So we have upper extremity and lower extremity uh, all at one time. For our beginners, maybe we start with just two leg cuffs um, and then move to the arm cuffs. Okay. You know, it, it all depends, you know, so yeah. you can increase or decrease the intensity simply by the number of cuffs that you put on. Okay. And okay. now when you're doing this, because I know we talk about types of cuffs, obviously it was rock cuff was the one that you seem to mm -hmm. like. We use that in lab, but it just seems to be the most versatile. Um, if you're doing those type of workouts, you obviously need one that's portable. So yes. I guess that would make sense. Well, you know, it, it's, it's, here's what I'll say, you know, obviously I teach for rock cuff, so I, I'm going to, I'm going to promote rock cuff. Yeah. But here's why I chose rock cuff um, is because the other cuffs, you know, you've got two cuffs out there and I won't say what they are. There's two cuffs out there that fully include. Okay. I cannot give that to an athlete to do in the gym because, because athletes, right. Like a little bit is good. So if I yeah. fully include, yeah. man, that's going to yeah. be freaking awesome. Like I'm gonna get really <laughs> My testosterone is going to be jacked right, up. Right, 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 right. So, so that's out of the question. The other one is that does not fully include is also pneumatic. So it blows up. The problem I have with that, I don't like being a spectacle in the gym. So if I'm over in the corner, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, just it, you know, the nice thing about the rock cuffs that I can crank it on do my set. I'm not yeah. making a huge spectacle on myself. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so for me, from a versatile, from a versatility perspective, it's very versatile. I can use it for a lot of different things. It's very efficient. And I don't have to worry about an athlete injuring themselves when they're doing the rock cuff because it will not fully include. Nice. Interesting. Nice. Hey, listen, I have three questions. We want to fire at you here. Yep. All right. We come to that time of the show. Um, first question I have for you is, um, what now is keeping you awake at night? What are some things that are keeping you awake at night? If you're sleeping, uh, cause I don't think yeah. you're going <laughs> to, yeah, I, I do sleep, uh, probably my 16 year old driver. <laughs> if I'm going to be honest, <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, I, I can relate. I have two of the drive and they're yeah. uh, their first year and a half drive and we had five accidents. So I can totally yeah. get that one. That, that would keep me awake at night. Yeah. From a clinical perspective, I would say, you know, we, we uh, were undertaking a massive amount of testing. We have over 2,450 assessments that we're going to be doing uh, through the months of July to August. Um, so that's probably the thing that keeps me awake the most. Gotcha. Is, is the logistics and it's scheduling logistics. around that. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. 
the a question that kind of butts up against that is, uh, what is what what are some of your greatest upset? Uh, what's your greatest obsession right now? <laughs> Jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu. <laughs> by, by far, by far, by far. There's something about choking people out that just you know just just excites Got some fun me. to it. Yeah, there you go. Okay, and, and it releases me. Like it just makes yeah. me so calm. Yeah. So awesome. A little anger management, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Nothing exactly. wrong with that. Cool. Yep. And then, you know, while we have, every, you know, I, I want people to understand that when we bring people on like this, uh, you know, the success that you have, um, there's, you can hear it in the conversation that we're having here. Um, but kind of tell people, what are some of your success habits throughout, throughout your day, throughout, like, where it's gotten you to where you are sure. now. So kind of. Sure. Number one, uh, I get up early mm-hmm. and I, I get shit done. Um, you know, I, I roll out of bed at 3 a.m. every morning. Um, I've done that for over 20 years. I go to the gym, I work out, you know, um, I do my jujitsu, um, you know, and, and I'm very persistent at it. Um, I, if I find something that I want to do, I'm persistent at it. Um, I failed a lot. You know, I talked about the EMI mm-hmm. that took me 18 years to do. And I failed a lot. I lost a lot, a lot of money uh, around that but I was persistent at it. And, you know, um, for me, it was taking the failures um, and learnings from them and then turning around and don't let it discourage you. Um, and I don't let people discourage you. Yeah. Keep up on the research, man. You, you know, it's just, it frustrates the heck out of me when I go and do a presentation for a group of PTs and they're like, oh my God, that's amazing. It's like, have you pulled a paper since, I don't know, 2000? <laughs> like that's, it's not new information, right? right? So, you know, keeping ourselves abreast of the, the latest data. Um, and then really, quite honestly, how do you take your art and apply what you've just learned? You know, and, and you know. Wide knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, you know, and, 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 I, and the other thing I'll say is uh, have your faith. Uh, I'm a firm believer that God put me on a path for a reason. Um, oh, and that's why, that's why I'm here today. And I'm blessed to have been married for 29 years. I've got an, an amazing uh, partner in crime, uh, who's, who's been with me the whole way, supported me the whole way. And, you know, I just, I feel very blessed. So that's, that's awesome awesome. stuff, man. Good shit. What time do you get to sleep to be able to get up at 3am and, uh, okay. Uh, you have any strategies for how I could do that schedule with a nine month old that doesn't want to (laughs) sleep? Yeah. Uh, no, not yet. Yeah. I had to make modifications when my kids were that age. Yeah. 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 You're kids, sleep my, deprived right yeah. now. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That, that's what I'm finding. Uh, yep. so yes. I'm, I'm, yeah. You know, you try to, it's, it, you go through those tough phases where you try right. to figure out ways, but you know, I think things find their way to even out, but uh, yeah. yeah. It's great military training. Yes. Sleep deprivation. It's, it's good yeah. for you. <laughs> Very good for you. <laughs> well, listen, uh, where can people find you? Where's the best place? Uh, you can go to uh, justrebound.com, uh, and that's our, our company website, and that's uh, where we, we live. Um, I also have a personal website, drtrentnessler.com, um, and then we are launching a new website, uh, combatathletescienceinstitute.com, uh, and that's uh, we're starting a new business around uh, injury prevention in combat athletes. That's awesome. That's yes. awesome. Mike, where yeah, can they I- find you? I'm on the Instagram at the uh, honey badger underscore juicy and on LinkedIn at Mike St. George. It's a two favorite place on that. Nice. I know you want I'm to add in a little. I'm also on Instagram too. There you go. Where can they find you on Instagram? 
Uh, BJJPT underscore ACL guy. Awesome. Mike, you were going to, did you have another point there that you wanted to add I, in? I was going to say that this was awesome, Trent. We really appreciate your time. Um, you know, and as we talked earlier, you know, Joe and I are really trying to build a network and like you even put us in touch with uh, Courtney Green and, and we yeah. were playing some tag yeah. and trying to get in contact with her. But I see what she posts on LinkedIn and she's on the same wavelength as, as Joe and I. So, you I'm know, telling you. And, and, that's what we, and that's what we yeah. said with the surgeon last night that we're trying to build this network. And I, I keep reiterating this at the end of every podcast, because I want the listener to understand that, that we want to get this education out because it is, it's, um, this is a very uh, underserviced area. Um, I think our profession has a lot of work to do, but even, even the whole healthcare profession, I mean, even everything that happened with COVID when everything shut down, mm-hmm. there was no education on what people should do to take care of themselves. Yeah. And right now I have tons of patients that are coming in that have just deteriorated over a year yeah. because they sat inside, they did nothing and, and, and they didn't know what to do. And they just completely had a 180 in their lifestyle. And there was not enough coming from all these professions to educate people on just simple things on how to, take care of yourself, diet. What are, what are some healthier, I'm, I'm locked inside. What can I do to eat healthier that, you know, and other options, what are some simple things I could do, you know? Yeah. So the educational components, like what I said to you about that athlete, you know, it's like parents really, you know, they, they don't know the information that's not available because no one is putting it there. So that was our goal of this podcast is to bring all these great resources and put them out there and you continue to network. And I, I think it's great that you're active on Instagram because that's what I like to use. I yeah. tag people and stuff. I send things that I think might be, um, someone might be interested in. Like if I come across a podcast thing, like I would send it to you and be like, Hey, you might really like this. Cause they're talking about, you know, the special forces, jujitsu, things like that, or it's cool ACL stuff, but the ability to network today is, is so easy, you know, and, and yeah. people use social media for some stupid shit, but we can use it for something really powerful like this. I mean, I know Joe and I are really excited to, to look more into the, the V perform system. We want to learn more about that yeah. going forward. So we'll have some more conversations, but if we could just get this information out to more of the community, the parents, the coaches, even the athletes get in to listen to this, I think it'd be really powerful and making a difference. It's just, they got to you know, it's the first step education. Yeah. Bingo. Bingo. Again, you can find me at coach yeah. underscore Haas. Um, on Instagram, you can go to LinkedIn. I'm at Joe Haas. Uh, you can go to YouTube to see the podcast. Um, and that's under Coach Haas as well. Trent, again, like Mike said, uh, th- this is an, an hour and a half of more education on the thing that, that I'm completely passionate about, that I was a strength coach and I found a gap here. Uh, I, I, I saw these athletes that were missing this. You know, you, you had PT and then they're like, okay, you're good. And they're going, and I was like, no, no, they're not good. There needs to be somebody to step up, jump into that space. Uh, I had a pair of balls and I did it, you know, and, and that's where I'm at. And uh, again, thank you so much for your time. This was great. A Friday afternoon, we got it in and hopefully we can get you back on again sometime. I'd love it. Absolutely love it. Thank you guys so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you guys. Have a great day. Have a good weekend. Yeah, you too. Bye. 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 Bye.